0: Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast, featuring in-depth conversations with executives, leaders, influencers, and journalists in this dynamic, high-stakes industry. Hosted by Craig Pickett, founder of North Star Group, the boutique executive search firm for the aerospace industry. You'll learn how top aerospace executives are developing their people, competing for talent overcoming challenges, and adjusting to industry trends to drive growth and profits. And now, let's join your host, Craig Pickett. Hey, welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. I'm uh, Craig Pickett. Hey, today I've got uh, Michael Gale with me. Michael Gale is a a Wall Street Journal bestselling author. Uh, His recent book is The Digital Helix, which is helping company define their digital transformations. He's a podcaster himself and a LinkedIn influencer who specializes in AI and digital transformations and helping businesses get to the next level. So, hey, Michael, how are you?
1: I'm good. I'm excited about this. It should be a really interesting conversation. So, thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, no. Hey, thanks for uh, thanks for being here. So, uh, hey, so talk about you know AI, the buzzword right now. Uh, I don't know whether to embrace it or be yeah, be scared of it. I think a lot of people feel the same way. I think
1: everybody feels exactly the same way. In fact, that's probably, for all the consulting work and books you're going to read, the right answer. Partly, I think, because it, is, it has a mind of its own uh, and also because the direction we headed in is going to have, you know, really radical implications for us as a species. Uh, not just at the sort of business level, but I think really even for humanity itself.
0: Yeah, no doubt there. I mean, it all it comes down to, you remember when Google went public, you know, their, their, their uh, I think their um, company statement was, don't be evil. Um, yeah, yeah, AI, you could look at it and you think about the benefits people are getting from AI now. I was over in Spain a couple of weeks ago and got a call from American Express. Hey, are you using, you know, we're, we're, we're picking up some weird transactions. Is that you? Yeah. How'd you know? Well, we, we use AI for that stuff now. And imagine I if think... you
1: had, you know, visual AI in a store, you got into a store, took a picture of it, you, uh, American Express, took that photo and validated that it was you at a counter, not somebody else.
0: That's scary. Yeah, we're, there. Think... I mean, we're,
1: re- we're really there, <clears throat> so you don't even have to know <clears throat> that you had an issue or didn't have an issue. And, yep. she, and I think that is literally the potential, good and bad, uh, about where we're going
0: with this. Or China. Facial recognition, AI and facial recognition. So well, you know, that's, that's the downsides. Yeah, there are
1: 2 million CCTV cameras in the UK. Um, for every amazing crime they've caught, and probably for every terrorist action they've stopped, there's always a dark side about what could be tracked by GCHQ or MI5 or MI6 that may not necessarily be something individuals or groups want to have revealed. You know, is, is it racial profiling? Is it gender profiling? There's a whole bunch of underlying variables that we are not good at teaching ourselves. We have to make decisions on. So I think it's very cool of Google to say, do no evil. We actually have to train people to not do evil too, to think in new ways, not try and use old mechanisms to try and deploy new ideas and technologies. Just a very tough discussion.
0: Yeah, no, and, and look, it's gonna be, you know, the the next I think for the next decade it's gonna be a conversation about, you know, you think about standards. In electronics, computers, you know, industry in general, the the next thing will probably be standards and what is acceptable use of AI. Yeah, you know what we is agree. not. So, but let's talk about some. Uh, let's let's kind of go more of a fun route. Digital digital. Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got a little dark there early. So uh, let's Sorry, let's, yeah. let's change it. So digital transformations, corporate digital transformations. And it is really cool to see, you know, what Amazon has done, what, you know, what's happening online, you know, companies and Internet of Things, you know, are, are companies really thinking about their digital profile and what they need to be doing? And-
1: I think it's deeper than profile. I mean, Amazon is born as a digital business and uh, has actually had to consistently evolve to stay relevant. But let's say we're dealing with an old manufacturing business or... Even, frankly, a consulting firm that was born in the days of email, PowerPoint, FaceTime, you know, with clients. I think there's a real need to not digitally wrap. A lot of organizations use technology, and it's sort of like putting a steam engine in a sailing ship. Sort of works okay for a while, but isn't infinitely scalable. For the biggest problem, I think, with transforming organizations, you can't wrap it digitally. You actually have to make the business itself a platform. For doing business, and that requires a digital core to do the business as a platform, not just as digital wrapping. I think the biggest challenge is you know, IT turns up and says, "Hey, spend this." Business units point to other people and say, "Do that," but that's both superficial wrapping and sort of um, instant sort of gratification. You know, th- this is the scary factor. This all the research we did last year with Forbes showed that twenty-eight percent of corporations have garnered over 72% of all the possible returns, OPEX, CAPEX, SGA, that can come in the global 2000 from being successful at digitally transforming. That means for every $1 they make, competitive firms only make 38 cents. And if that continues for three, four years, they'll have sucked up 50% of all the growth. So this sounds like an easy discussion. Get the tech, it's not. When you get it right, the outcomes are outrageously high relative. So not getting it right, if you consistently get it right over time, which is where Amazon's been, uh, I just think the economic gap between those companies that survive and thrive will be so enormous that we're going to see vast arrays of organizations thrown on the wayside in the next two, three, five years.
0: Is that a lot of, you know, you, you look at the retail apocalypse now. Oh, yeah. Um yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, um, you can see it in healthcare. I think we're going to see find out a great article today, actually, on financial services, like the banking industry suddenly got three pressures. You know, cyber currency is going to really damage it badly. Who the hell ever goes to a physical bank anymore? And the biggest the decisions we ever make on mortgages and car loans are being ripped away from traditional banks. So all banks are being left with is really painful cash management, bill paying, and when was the last time you wrote a check? So, Joe, by definition, every industry is vulnerable to this in different ways. It's just as leaders, and frankly, even recruiting leaders. If I was a board, of a major corporation, the first question I'd ask a candidate is, what are your plans for digital transformation? How are you going to transform this organization into a digital platform? If you don't ask that question, there's no way a leader is going to be successful. It's sort of like the moonshot that every company has to make, but the vast array of companies don't know how to make that moonshot work.
0: So what's the process? So you think about a you know, company with it, you know, even a, a brick-and-mortar, a small brick-and-mortar company. They need to get the word out. I um, mean, you know, they, they, you know, they, they you know, sales, marketing, you know, payment plans. It's all going. It's all going digital.
1: Oh, well, I think it's exactly that. That is literally the strategy session you've just
0: defined it. You're just, you're
1: you're just, you're right? It's like in two sentences. Is Every the day.
0: new? Is the new? Is the new C-level executive the chief digital officer?
1: No, I think the new executive is still the same executive, but they have different focus and scales. Look. Like, The most successful CEOs in the world are strategically very adroit, but they're incredibly good with human beings. They're extraordinarily good with understanding where the future is, and they're exceptional at building pathways to get there. But what you literally just said, hey, customers, financing, product delivery, all those elements need to be part of how do we make this business digital. Take an example. If you're a bike repair store, a pedal bike repair store, uh, you're in the middle of a city and you've traditionally just repaired people's bikes at peak periods of the year, Think about how you should be gathering your customer data. Think about whether or not you should be selling electric bikes or the margins are through the roof. Think about how you could have a service that picks up and maintains bikes versus asking people to come in. Think about how you handle billing. Think about how you are connected with customers with digital mapping systems or weather updates. I mean, literally, you have to reinvent the nature of your business in order to understand where your economic streams come from. And at the smallest business level, this is just as intricate issue as it is for a large corporation like Rubbermaid or GE or, frankly, even Boeing.
0: Right. Well, that's the whole, you know, that's the the big push with the aerospace industry is inventory management. You know, right part to the right customer at the right time without carrying too much inventory.
1: But I think it's deeper than that. I think if you think about this mathematical problem, it's called dynamic resource allocation. The aerospace industry is absolutely the best example of it because everything is a resource, time, parts, uh, uptime, downtimes, resource allocation, you know, even down to the fact that the aeronautic industry could say to the carriers, look, what are the business problems you have that we could pre-build into our products? And I just think you look at where Boeing is going through in, in its sort of software development business and others. The aerospace industry is I think, one of the most exciting businesses to digitally transform every way from materials and fuel to literally what services can they now offer. Everything's up for grabs, but was never part of their traditional mandate.
0: You see smaller companies being able to come in and compete against the bigger companies and take on some of that? Is that, is that an ability or is it just kind of becoming... Does it just kind of become the bigger, the bigger companies invest more in the platforms and dominate further?
1: Yes, interesting, I think there's two levels. I think much like the car industry, it's really difficult to break into big industrial production. Making complex things that fly is just really difficult, yeah. right, but I, right. Do, but I do believe whether or not it's 3D parts printing, it's uh, looking at new services that can be embedded in the actual industry itself. The opportunity for small companies to sell to the big guys is great. And if you look back actually at the financial services market pre-2008 with all the big giants, they constantly grew by acquiring new forms of IP and businesses that made them more and more relevant to clients. And I just think the aeronautic industry can't invent its way out of this. It's going to have to acquire some assets and some new thinking in order to get to the next level. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Do you, you know, how do you see you – know, what do you see about you – know, where, where, who's going to be their partner? Is it Microsoft? Is it is
1: it Google? Is well, it I think it's so I'm not sure it's actually those guys because I think they are looking at the world as traditional, put everything to the cloud. But imagine if you're sitting there in a boardroom at Boeing right now. You're gonna be looking at what new material what new materials can we use that will not just change the composition of the experience in a plane but how we make it. What new fuels are we gonna use? Um, what are the ideas that we bring in that help change the nature of our business relationship with partners and customers? I think they're going to have to build a patchwork of IP and and product components to get there. No doubt, Microsoft is going to be a big deal in that. But I think to, to rely on innovation from companies that come from what are going to be considered traditional sectors, you know, in the next 10 years might be problematic. I mean, look at the whole 3D printing category. It's not just product, it's food now, you know, don't laugh, but These guys are working with NASA to get people to Mars doing that. And I just think to some extent what we're going to see is a really interesting patchwork of partnerships and acquisition that get these aeronautics companies to the next phase. Because cheaper and quicker isn't the way to do it. It's got to be quicker, cheaper, and different.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And different is the – yeah, everybody – yeah, blockchain right now is a big –
1: Yes, quite rightly too, but – blockchain is like saying i've got really good knitting patterns for you but we haven't actually invented the knitting machine yet so it's, sort of <laughs> a, it's a little bit hard you know can't for the horse but i understand where people are heading
0: are, your, are you are the people you're talking to i mean you're, you and i were chatting uh, before we started recording you know you're talking about a, an executive who's got 700 million followers around the world
1: Yeah, I'll give an example. The Liverpool Football Club um, is actually more famous than the Beatles, which is sort of bizarre when you think about that, but they have 707 million followers around the world. That means one in 10 human beings on the planet at some level follows Liverpool digitally. When we talked to the executive, they said, I can only get 64,000 people in a stadium 20, 25 times a year. I've got 707 million people following me, even fractionally. The economic models are going to radically shift for physical sports franchises going forward. And much like the aeronautics industry, you don't sort of invent a new team or a league every year. It's a pretty stable group. These are revolutions in in the economics um, of how that industry is going to work. What was originally just TV media could be a very different view of the world three, five years from now than we've ever seen before. And I just think when you look at the aeronautics industry, it may well have much of the same dynamics that need to be re-injected into the conversation. They can't just right. have a website or a digital process. They really have to think about what new types of experiences that they offer that can make a difference.
0: Well, you think about, like, uh, you know, uh, well, let's go back to Liverpool real quick 700 million people. I've got probably that data which talks about their income brackets, which product they'll buy, where they live, what product they'll buy. Um, which moments they care about during the what, week, I mean, not which, just during the game,
1: but you know, twenty four by seven, three sixty five.
0: So there's all, all of a sudden there's more information. You know, that, you know, now I've got information that I can use with marketing partners who are willing to buy it from me, um, etc. So you know, you're, you're talking about like the money making opportunities are endless. Yes, wow. and,
1: and what your focus is is to produce a wonderful experience a phenomenal product and a level of deep emotional commitment that means when they're online or when they're doing something, even if they turn their thumb quarter of an inch to the left or a quarter inch to the right, they're going to go with you. Right. But but the same is true when I'm on an airplane for eight, 10 hours. You know, what are the other things that I could do? What are the other relationships I can have? And we've always been very driven by, I make this, I sell that to you, I walk away. And I just think in the digital world where, they, you know, where millennials are the largest population and that Alpha and Z and Y will be even greater, a larger portion of the workforce in five years' time, we really have to rethink what it is we sell, how we make money, because the world is radically different than it was five years ago. Well,
0: I think, so I fly just because I live in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, Delta Airlines and American Airlines are really the only two carriers here. So I fly almost exclusively American, just because Delta didn't have that much in the way of until recently so anyway um you know i've got the 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 american airlines app on my phone and they're always talking about you know look they're making more money selling credit card yeah credit card you know subscriptions or you know you know they're partnering with banks and selling you know financial products um but you think about it the power that they have that they're they're leaving on the table they know where I live. If they did a little bit of research, they could probably figure out how much money I make. They definitely know how many times I fly. They know I'm probably married or could figure that out. Um, you know, all of a sudden they start coming to me with, hey, Craig, why don't you take your wife on a, yeah, we're, we're partnering with Hyatt. Why don't you and your wife go to New York City and catch a show? And, and the grand total is 5000 bucks." Um, you know, or creating-
1: yeah, I think there's a deeper moment. You know, all these airlines charge you for Wi-Fi. It's ridiculous, right? If you're flying from, I don't know, Wilmington to Chicago, it's what, two or three hours? Yeah, yeah. Give two it hours. away. Give it away. You're going to be more attuned to work with them. You're going to see more things online, right, during the flight, less distracted by the kids next to you or some little bumpiness. You're being entertained, yet you're on a plane. But that's valuable moment that is just not being utilised. And I look at the carrier business in particular. I think they're terrible about thinking outside the box beyond the traditional. Here's a database. Here's a customer. Sell you something. Those are moments that are really precious. You're you're dedicated. You're committed to them. You know how about them saying to you, "Hey, look, um, you're on a flight today. By the way, these roads look really blocked. So if you're driving, and avoid them. All right. Or when you get to a parking, go look." There are 15 spaces over there that you could park in. There's so many ways of enhancing the relationship in a positive and productive manner that digital technologies let you do. It's just the limitation of poor imagination is restricting these organizations.
0: Are you finding that with the companies that you talk to? It's like the the, the, the opportunities to enhance your revenue and take your business to the next level are exponentially greater um your yeah. only limit is what you're willing the only limit is really what your imagination is
1: i believe that to be fundamentally true i mean when we finished the research in the global 2000 last year so it's all the basic transportation companies aeronautic industries 80 percent of the companies that really were thriving with digital transformation were less than 50 years old i'm not sure why the 50 year category makes a difference but age of organization and associated calcification really prevents people thinking to the future. And we kept saying, look, is it how much you spend? No. Well, the analysis we found was is there is not a direct correlation past a certain level in how much you spend. It is basically a failure of imagination. I think it's that simple.
0: Well, I think about, you know, you talk about the age, you know, less than 50, companies less than 50 years old. You know, my, both of my kids, I've got twins. They're going off to college in a month. They are much more you know, digitally astute, technologically astute than I am. Um, you know, and and their kids will be much, probably much more astute than, you know, than they are. Um, you know, it's a generation. It's it's a generational. It's a generational thing. But you know, a lot of you know, I, I look at the, the, the what they call the retail apocalypse, and I, I see you know, fantastic retailers, you know, who just didn't get it. And it's like, wait, wait a second. You know, when Amazon was invented, you know, when, when Amazon came online in 1997, you know, the whole world changed. Um, they did. Yes. yes. And, well, and that's, and again, it's the
1: paradox of imagination. I remember back in 97, because we were doing some work with Amazon then, there were a range of other businesses like UBID, eBay, all others that have been out there that really failed to recognize that, that retail is a journey from... the the manufacturing process to the final product company through to the channel, and frankly, even back again. And what Jeff and the team understood was every single one of those moments is a moment to make money. People forget Amazon is one of the largest media companies in the world because people pay them digital shelving fees. Um, People forget that, you know, they've just bought 30, 40, 50 airplanes because as part of that understanding of a product's journey, they want to deliver the last inch. And it was just a failure of imagination. I mean, the very first book they sold, it was a technical book on hex programming. I'm sure the book doesn't even sell anymore, but he's understood where this journey will head to. So again, when you and I just talk about the aeronautics industry and what American airlines could and couldn't do, yes, they could sell you more holidays, but think of all those moments in your journey to the airport, on the plane and after, where they could have economic value. And again, not doing that is a failure of imagination. It's not driven by money, honestly. Yeah, and it may well be reinforced because these leaders are generally older, like us, and generally not particularly comprehending of the way people now think in terms of brands, relationships, and economics. But we pay $3 to get a McDonald's delivered to us through you know, Uber Grub. Who would have ever thought of uh, paying to have a McDonald's delivered to the house? That's not an uncommon
0: thing anymore. Just the world's changed. Oh, and then you, all of a sudden no, you now you've got you know, predictive... Predictive capability or the Domino's guy on the corner of the street. Yes. You know, hey, look, it's Tuesday. I'll make yeah, 100 pizzas today, you know, statistically or whatever. And only uh, three of them
1: will be vegan, but I'll sell every single one of them between 6.30 and 8. That's right. what, it's exactly it's a brilliant example of exactly where the world is going. And I think that's partly exciting because most economic, if you look back at the basic theories of economics, it's always about friction. I know, or you know something more than I do. That means you can get a product to me for more money than I can get it somewhere else. All right. the, the, The whole digital environment has actually got rid of that friction and is almost producing a flat planet. So the question is, is how much opportunity can you grab that's outside your traditional thinking is a big discussion. And it should be written on a CEO's whiteboard because that's the question that should start every meeting.
0: Where do we go from here? Yeah. What's well, the big? What's the big? I mean, you know, it's all coming. Every, you know, it's it's coming like a you know a train. What's what's keeping CEOs from really, you know, driving the process? What, you know, from what from your experience, what? Uh, you know, are businesses on board with it? Or are they reluctant? Or a little bit of both? I think most execs.
1: It's rather like going to the moon, right? Most execs say, "Sure, we can do it," right? But then you say, okay, here's what it's going to take and here's how to do it. Uh, well, okay, we'll just look at that over time. So I think one of it is there are, there's no clear pathway to get there. So what sounds intrinsically interesting and obvious is difficult to get to. It's about one third. I think another half of the audience basically tries to digitally wrap. Hey, let's take that thing and make it digital. Let's do this thing and make it digital. They do not sit back and start from the core of understanding, you know, consumer, customer, you know, partner, employee. Because the experiences you and I have at home are starting to drive the way we think about it at work. I think a lot of CEOs are very detached from that daily human living and therefore fail to understand, you know, the postal Monster Burger delivered for $2.50 or someone who doesn't want to drive to work anymore, but actually has an electric bike or goes by public transport or rents a car when they need it. They are very detached from the changing world around us. And I think failure there is a failure to engage in the world digitally and they still hunker down in a very binary or analog way to trying to solve a digital problem and that probably i think 50 50 is what's probably driving most failure is an inability to engage with the world digitally to understand what those opportunities are
0: so when you you talk about so we, we talked a little bit about roi um early on in the show you said for everybody that's for every company that's really digitally focused for every dollar they're making their competitors are making 38 cents Yep, I believe that was the statistic you used. Correct. Yeah. Yep. When you talk about, um, you know, return on investment, if a company says, "All right, we'll spend ten million dollars this year on digital, new apps, new thought processes, new data gathering information," is there a rule of thumb for payback on that, or uh... at
1: minimum ten to one? And everything we tracked, I mean, we went through. 26 metrics around, you know, OPEX, CAPEX, SG&A, revenue, process, brand, you know, confidence, all that sort of stuff. And the basic, if you get it right, there's about a 10 to one return. And it's multiple metrics. So if you want to affect CAPEX, you can also affect OPEX and total revenue. So for every dollar you put in, you will absolutely get, if you do it right, at least 10 back. Wow. Yeah, it's that dramatic. That's what I'm saying the 28% suck up 72% plus the returns because they get it. Much like great soccer teams get that the next 10 years is about having a cauldron of great players and a brilliant coach, right? It's the Patriots way. Uh, that's what's going to make them stand out from you know, the other teams in the league. Much as Amazon is now actually retraining one third of its US workforce because it knows in three years' time, the job you did today is not going to be relevant. It's this understanding of change is constant. Uh, you've got to build these, these digital helix components we talked about those are getting it right are just so far ahead in the race, you've got to question how these other Goliaths are going to survive.
0: Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you talk about, you know, we talked about Liverpool. Last night I watched Moneyball. Yeah. Remember the movie Moneyball? You know, I all right. hey, look, let's, you know, let's look at something other than star power and how much money we have to pay. Let's talk about, you know, you know different metrics. And um, I'm assuming... Digital analysis is one thing that's going to really affect the human workplaces so far as in people we hire as well. How is that going to?
1: That's a great how question. Is that going so, I think there's a good article I picked off from McKinsey today, which is on my LinkedIn, really about the sort of what makes people happy, satisfied, and productive. And I think we've got to move away from people have a role to people have a constant learning or development journey. And if they're not prepared to go on that, they probably are not going to have value over time. So I talked to Tom Siebel yesterday, you know, he's the founder of Siebel Software, and his new business is look, we want a third of our staff constantly going through personal, intellectual, and technical learning curves all the time. In fact, we pay them, we reward them, we have a learning hall of fame. I just think it's not so much how you recruit, but the fact that you are genuinely prepared to invest in people and learning. Is giving you asset value over time, and that's that has been a tough issue for corporations because you've now got to actually now account for 15, 20 percent of an, of somebody's costs as being a constant learning cost, not just you know healthcare and vacations, but you know personal development. And HR is not a good advocate for this because they've been so compliance orientated. Someone has to say our people matter, or get them invest in them. Because better people will do better jobs for us. And that's, I think, the, the priority that a lot of CEOs seem to miss.
0: Uh, you know, Tom Siebel's a guy, I, you know, look, I've never met him, you know, but I've followed him, read a lot about him. You know, a guy I've always admired. Um, it absolutely drives me crazy when I talk to businesses and they say, we're going to have a sales meeting in February. And they will spend... 50, 60, 70 hundred thousand dollars bring all the salespeople in or more to have a great three-day rah-rah session on you know on Thursday afternoon, they kick everybody out, you know, go to it. But if you sit there and say, Do your salespeople have coaches? Are you are you 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 pushing them or or any executive in general, are you pushing them to learn more and grow? It's crickets. It's, 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 it, the answer is obviously no. It's you know, Well, they know how to go out and buy a book, and they know how to get self-help. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it Absolutely, it makes me mental that, that, that corporate America has not figured out that smart employees are, you know, their best asset, invest in, the, invest in them appropriately.
1: Oh, look, completely agree. I look at Satya at Microsoft, how he's understood it, and still how a challenge it is, and it, it may well be, honestly that our two, our, our Achilles heel to digital transformation successfully in this country is our inability to understand that humans are capital assets that need to be developed, not just deployed. We're really good at deployment. We've, we've not shown a capacity for sustained development. And I think that could be our Achilles heel in this process.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's the one, well, that's, you know, that's what everybody's talking about now. It's, it's you know, we're talking about, you know, like digital now and you know, I'm thinking about my son. He's going to University of North Carolina next month and wants to study business there. And I'm going to go home to him tonight and say, hey, Rye, you know, you need, to, you need to look at this thing. I'm not sure business schools are even on board with it yet. No, um, it's just, so I'll
1: give you two yeah. interesting insights. So we do work with a number of NFL teams, uh, one in the South and one in, in the Northern Division. And one of the groups of coaches said to me individually every day, they said, hey, what, what should my kids be doing at college? They're about to go to college. I thought, gosh, I'm not sure if I should be the right person to ask it. But I remember after about the second or third attempt of trying to articulate it clearly, saying, look, your kids need to see college as part of a constant life learning journey where they take as much responsibility for their learning as they would do for their health care or their financial security or paying their mortgage. And I'd argue that should be the very first thing that freshmen are told when they go to college. This is part of a journey. It's not just a sort of quick in and out three or four-year degree. We're going to teach you how to learn for the rest of your life. And that, I think, is where the MBA is struggling because it assumes it can give you a skill in one or two years that will be just as relevant in 10 or 15 years' time. And look, I was a partner monitor group with Michael Porter, who is, was probably the father of the MBA. And even Michael would not acknowledge that they cannot, at those time points, give you adequate learning unless somebody makes a genuine commitment to a lifetime of
0: advanced learning. How does this all, impl- you know? How does this all play out in the, you know, uh, political, you know, schools? You, know, you think about kids coming up in grade school now. How do we teach them? I mean, how, how you know, what's the new thought process? You know, is, is you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic obviously is it going to be enough? Well, there's a uh, guy
1: we interviewed for the podcast who argues that the way we teach learning, since really 1890s, is ridiculous. We teach people rote learning versus problem solving, we actually have to teach people how to think about solving problems. You know, young minds are incredibly flexible and really adroit. We should be giving kids challenges to solve and getting to learn through challenges. Yes, there's some basic requirements, but teaching people how to problem solve is a much better educational uh, DNA than teaching people memory tricks, which is not an effective method for dealing with a complex and sort of ever-evolving world.
0: So there's a, a big argument you know, I've been reading about, you know, you know. once again, I'll go back to a little bit of the political side of the house, you know, is China going to beat the U.S. and AI? Is Europe, you know, where is Europe, you know, advancing or lagging, et cetera? Um, is, is, is really the, the playing field at this stage of the game, is it flat? Is somebody, you know, more poised? Is one country or, you know, more poised to dominate or is it, it, it seems like it's pretty equal to me. So go back
1: to, I think the discovery and colonization of the U S. So really from, let's say 1530 through to about 1740, because uh, after then it was fairly clearly going to be an English type model and a couple of things happen. I think we're at the sort of 1530 phase of AI in that China's application of pure volume of resources into AI, and devoid of the whole cyber warfare issue, is really designed to find a way to scale their country. Look, people forget that once you get outside these big cities, there are hundreds of cities with populations over a million that have not been fully touched by the government or the economic environment. So of the billion-plus people in China, maybe only... 100 or 200 million have genuinely experienced the economic boom that they've seen in the last 20 years. AI will allow them to experience, personally, government-wise, a much richer experience than they've had without an enormous imposition of cost. So I think their initial attempts at colonization or, or expansion of this sort of Chinese model with AI is really domestically focused. I think we are struggling here with AI in very big ways because we've really not applied it in a way that helps society overall, whether it's a Facebook issue or visual recognition, we've got to find the killer app that really matters to Americans. Once we find the killer apps that really matter to Americans, you have to trust the Western capitalistic system to work well. We just haven't found the magic moment. And I think that I truly believe that Western models, where individuals are vital, knowledge is critical, and learning is key. I think, really will benefit from AI more than models where there is a general subjugation of individualism because humans are amazing if you let them be the best versions of themselves. That's really what the Western systems are wanting to do. We just have to find some killer apps to start with. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. What about, you know, you, you talked about, what about cyber, you know, cyber security? Um, yeah, you know, the one thing we've talked about is, yeah, you know, you've got all this opportunity and all this potential, um and all this ability is it protectable um actually I I and thomas said this yesterday when we
1: talked and he obviously understands it far better than you and i and he said i just don't know and i think anybody would tell you know we don't know what people are already doing with it because we just don't like right? we're, we're not in the know so you, you never quite know how remarkable it's been already or how maybe dark it's been but you know as a human being we have two halves now we have our physical half. And we have our digital half, and cyber affects the digital half, but it's increasingly going to start affecting the physical half of us too. And understanding there's two halves of our personality or our presence is going to be a really interesting journey over the next five to ten years. Yes, it could go bad. But it can also go really good as well. The example you gave from Spain about being protected on a credit card transaction, or you know maybe you know we get medically tracked with our I- IoT devices, and that device can predict. Ten minutes before it happens, what a heart attack could look like, or securing that data all the way back through to the hospital system is a different type of problem than the than the one of you know credit uh, abuse or maybe even you know our sort of security perspective. And cyber seems to touch all these areas, so we just have to find the good stuff working first, and I think everything generally tends to head in the right way afterwards
0: does privacy just go out the window? You know, it's, you know, oh, God. I, I look at you. Know, people say, Hey, I'm going to go off the grid. Um, you know, my, my, you know, my feelings on privacy is hey, every time you log into fi- Facebook and put a post out there, or I'm a big LinkedIn you know, type of guy. And I, yeah. I put a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. So obviously I'm putting it out there towards the world. Um, should we just give up the fact that y- you can't be anonymous in the world anymore?
1: give me two analogies, because it's a big question. I think, you know, how many people now worry about the handwriting? Well, probably a small number, uh, but we should be worried about the handwriting because we still have to write notes to people that are legible. So understanding how to get, you know, connected letters and letters that are uh, transparently obvious and are not in a doctor's prescription, it's really important. I think privacy just becomes different. I think we have always assumed, by default, that, that privacy comes first. And public exposure or access comes second. I think, as you just said, you know, public access and exposure now goes first. But there are still vast arrays of privacy that you know we should be both protecting and living with. But if we're going to do things digitally all the time, it can be really difficult to be private in that process. Just a reality.
0: Yeah, you know, like I said, yeah, you know, it all just comes back to how it's all used. Um, yeah. but also the philosophy behind it, and I think you know.
1: Whether as a society, you know, do we have the right precepts that train people to say, no, I care about this, don't do it. It's when we don't bring the discussion up, like Facebook, that evil things can happen. And I think that not having the conversation isn't itself a criminal thing, because that means we're not discussing what we need to protect differently, you know, in our lives going forward.
0: Yeah, and on the flip side, too, the more my medical insurance company knows about me, yeah, they can use it, you know, for rate adjustments, etc. But they can also come and say hey here's some here's here's a plan to keep you healthy or, you know imagine if they knew where you were
1: on your phone and they found you at a barbecue joint
0: <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> well,
1: and they're like you've been there an hour and a half and we noticed on your credit card it was 47 dollars. Well, but that's not a
0: barbecue sandwich that's not good for your cholesterol yeah well they could you yeah. know, it's interesting they could already do it. you know an insurance company uh, an auto insurance company I was, you know, a friend of mine's got a, an agency and he was saying hey look you know you put you know when we write an auto insurance policy you say you drive your car 10,000 miles a year well every time you go take your car into for service they write down the mileage they write down the mileage and that gets put into the system which is ultimately you know, trackable with carfax and it gets back to the insurance company and we can sit there and say, Hey, yeah, cool. It's in accordance with what you told us you were going to do, or it's way out of line. And yeah, you know, we're going to adjust your rates, you know, accordingly, or we're yeah. going to come back. We're going to call up you know, come back and either you know, give you some, you know, give you some money back, or we're going to claw back some money from you. you know? I interviewed uh, Talissi Nancy, who's
1: the COO and CMO of uh, American Family Insurance. And after exactly that statement, I said, look, we might start having insurance like the fractional auctions market. I'd like to insure the car for six hours this week under a long drive to Vancouver, and the rate you're going to give me is really different than if I then do it from Monday to Friday commuting. And this could end up being like a variable arbitrage market, not just an annual fee we take. You know, you, yeah. you take insurance for the situation.
0: Once again, it all comes down to, you know, the ability, to, you know, how you your data, the ability to collect it, use it, and, and think about you know, the benefits of it.
1: Yeah, and I think there's, a moral, there's a moral and ethical code that now comes into every decision we ever make that I think would never have come into decisions three to five years ago.
0: If, if, if CEOs calling you and saying, all right, I'm way behind the eight ball, I need to get started. What do they do, who do they, what do they do, where do they go, who do they hire to get them started?
1: So I, I get them to get in the room, uh with their top six to eight managers and literally the whole walls should be white and say right we're gonna do three exercises here we're gonna work out what are the external factors really driving our business where's the world going the sort of world page the second page says look what are the sort of choices we could make short medium and long run middle wall the far right wall says right what do we need to stop doing what do we need to start doing what do we need to do differently? What do we need to do? And what do we need to continue with? That, that very act of that three-wall exercise is in itself, external world, what do we think we're really capable of doing? And then how do we stop it? That's the best strategy session before you bring anybody in. You know, you may have a really good strategy discourse, but have no knowledge of the outside world. Not good. You may have a really good knowledge of the outside world, but really not be good at understanding stop, start, do different. If you can get those three conversations to work, together, draw the piece of strings, whatever, you will be significantly ahead of it. I mean, the seven components we talk about in the book is really the sort of detailed way of measuring it. But that basic exercise in the room is without doubt the the right way to kick it off. I know it doesn't sound like a $2 million consulting engagement, but the most successful digitally transforming organizations, 86% of the time, do most of the work themselves because you can't get someone to change yourself. You have to do it.
0: Just think about where, where you can go, where are the possibilities, draw it out on a whiteboard.
1: Yeah, you know, but yeah, what, what the world's telling you, what's changing these big seven factors we talked about in the book, Ways that you could go, because the other thing is about a third of those companies are really good, found they revealed assets they had no idea they had before, and then the whole stop, start, do different, continue exercises is a super way to start it. And then
0: just start to implement
1: go and learn on the fly. I mean, most of these organizations said, look, we're very experimentationally driven. And by the way, when it goes wrong, we'll work it to the end and we're okay with that. These organizations are really good at being transparent in a whole bunch of these sort of seven dynamic ways. And they said, hey, we've learned to be different in this process. You just can't stick a digital engine in a sailing ship and expect the sailing ship to behave like a digital steamship. You have to build yourself a steamship. It just doesn't work otherwise.
0: Yeah, I got you. So cool. Hey, so let's do this. Will you come back and uh Talk to us some more on of another course,
1: podcast. It's a, first of all, these are great questions because it's almost like what's the meaning of life. And yeah, if you get good feedback from your listeners, they're more than happy to share whatever's needed.
0: This whole this whole thing to me is like I could talk for hours. Um, quite frankly, I could talk for hours and this. You just think about the endless possibilities um, that that technology will be bringing us and the ability to capitalize on. It. But um, the Digital Helix is your book, and mm-hmm. it can be found It can be found where? On it's on Amazon, obviously. Uh,
1: you'll get it at Barnes & Noble or any of the remaining physical bookstores that populate the world. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it has, and I think the podcast series with Forbes, uh, Insights in Future or Futures in Focus, is a good natural extension of the book because we talk to digitally transforming visionaries that are changing the world, and you can sort of see from there application of imagination, how much of this is possible far beyond the boundaries of size and profitability that we've traditionally seen as the big indicators.
0: And do people, you know, and, and then once again, you know, let's just, you know, it, it, to a lot of people, it's scary. Um, I look at it as kind of revolutionary. I think it's, you know, it's you, know, you know, 10 years from now, more people will be employed. The economy will be get, growing faster.
1: Oh, I think, um, it's, I think it's about abundance, not... Um, you know, limitation. In fact, what what Amazon has created already infinitely exceeds the theoretical damage of the retail business that's associated with it. No offense to Sears or Macy's or these others, but they didn't have sustainable models 15, 20 years ago. And you made a comment about American Airlines making more money from selling you holidays. That's not a good business. At some point, the economics can't succeed. And I think Amazon has revealed what great retail looks like physically is really different than what it looked like historically. It's still gonna be around, but it's just gonna be very different.
0: Yeah, yeah. How do people um, get in touch with you?
1: Grab me on LinkedIn. I like you, love LinkedIn. I think the content there, the sharing is fantastic. Or if you want to, email me at digital.
0: Awesome, well, hey, thanks, Michael, for being on board. Um, Michael Gale, author of the uh, The Digital Helix, and uh, LinkedIn Influencer, look him up and uh, let us know how you like the podcast. Thanks for coming on board, Michael. Appreciate it. Oh, absolute pleasure.